Chapter Two, Part One of The River War. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The River War, by Winston Churchill, Chapter Two: The Fate of the Envoy. All great movements, every vigorous impulse that a community may feel, become perverted and distorted as time passes and the atmosphere of the earth seems fatal to the noble aspirations of its peoples. A wide humanitarian sympathy in a nation easily degenerates into hysteria. A military spirit tends toward brutality. Liberty leads to license, restraint to tyranny. The pride of race is distended to blustering arrogance. The fear of God produces bigotry and superstition. There appears no exception to the mournful rule— and the best efforts of men, however glorious their early results, have dismal endings, like plants which shoot and bud and put forth beautiful flowers, and then grow rank and coarse and are withered by the winter. It is only when we reflect that the decay gives birth to fresh life, and that new enthusiasms spring up to take the places of those that die, as the acorn is nourished by the dead leaves of the oak, the hope strengthens that the rise and fall of men and their movements are only the changing foliage of the ever-growing tree of life, while underneath a greater evolution goes on continually. The movement which Muhammad Ahmed created did not escape the common fate of human enterprise, nor was it long before the warm, generous blood of a patriotic and religious revolt congealed into the dark clot of a military empire. With the expulsion or destruction of the foreign officials, soldiers, and traders, the racial element began to subside. The reason for its existence was removed. With the increasing disorders, the social agitation dwindled, for communism presupposes wealth, and the wealth of the Sudan was greatly diminished. There remained only the fanatical fury which the belief in the divine mission of the Mahdi had excited, and as the necessity for a leader passed away, the belief in his sanctity grew weaker. But meanwhile a new force was making itself felt on the character of the revolt. The triumph no less than the plunder which had rewarded the Mahdi's victories had called into existence a military spirit, distinct from the warlike passions of the tribesmen, the spirit of the professional soldier. The siege of Khartoum was carried on while this new influence was taking the place of the original forces of revolt. There was a period when a neutral point was obtained, and the modest power languished. But the invasion of the eastern Sudan by the British troops in the spring, and the necessary advance of the relieving columns in the winter of 1884, revived the patriotic element. The tribes who had made a great effort to free themselves from foreign domination saw in the operations of Sir Gerald Graham and Lord Wolseley an attempt to bring them again under the yoke. The impulse which was given to the Mahdi's cause was sufficient to raise a fierce opposition to the invading forces. The delay in the dispatch of the relief expedition had sealed the fate of Khartoum, and the fall of the town established the supremacy of the military spirit on which the Dervish Empire was afterwards founded. All the warlike operations of Mohammedan peoples are characterized by fanaticism, but with this general reservation it may be said— that the Arabs who destroyed Yusef, who assaulted el Obeid, who annihilated Hicks, fought in the glory of religious zeal. 
that the Arabs who opposed Graham, Earl, and Stuart fought in defence of the soil, and that the Arabs who were conquered by Kitchener fought in the pride of an army. Fanatics charged at Shekhan, patriots at Abu Klea, warriors at Omdurman. In order to describe conveniently the changing character of the revolt, I have anticipated the story, and must revert to a period when the social and racial influences were already weakening, and the military spirit was not yet grown strong. If the defeat of Yusef Pasha decided the whole people of the Sudan to rise in arms and strike for their liberties, the defeat of Hicks satisfied the British government that those liberties were won. The powerful influence of the desire to rule prompted the Khedive's ministers to make still further efforts to preserve their country's possessions. Had Egypt been left to herself, other desperate efforts would have been made. But the British government had finally abandoned the policy of non-interference with Egyptian action in the Sudan. They advised its abandonment. The protests of Sherif Pasha provoked Lord Granville to explain the meaning of the word advice. The Khedive bowed to superior authority. The minister resigned. The policy of evacuation was firmly adopted. Let us, said the ministers, collect the garrisons and come away. It was simple to decide on the course to be pursued, but almost impossible to follow it. Several of the Egyptian garrisons, as in Darfur and El Obeyed, had already fallen. The others were either besieged, like Senar, Tokar, and Sinkat, or cut off from the north, as in the case of the equatorial province, by the area of rebellion. The capital of the Sudan was, however, as yet unmolested, and as its Egyptian population exceeded the aggregate of the provincial towns, the first task of the Egyptian government was obvious. Mr. Gladstone's administration had repressed the revolt of Arabi Pasha. Through their policy the British were in armed occupation of Egypt. British officers were reorganizing the army. A British official supervised the finances. A British plenipotentiary advised the re-established Tufik. A British fleet lay attentive before the ruins of Alexandria, and it was evident that Great Britain could annex the country in name as well as in fact. But imperialism was not the object of the radical cabinet. Their aim was philanthropic and disinterested. As they were now determined that the Egyptians should evacuate the Sudan, so they had always been resolved that the British should evacuate Egypt. Throughout this chapter it will be seen that the desire to get out of the country at once is the keynote of the British policy. Every act, whether of war or administration, is intended to be final. Every dispatch is directed to breaking the connection between the two countries and winding up the severed strings. But responsibilities which have been lightly assumed clung like the shirt of Nessus. The ordinary practice of civilized nations demanded that some attempt should be made to justify interference by reorganization. The British government watched, therefore, with anxious solicitude the efforts of Egypt to evacuate the Sudan and bring the garrisons safely home. They utterly declined to assist with military force, but they were generous with their advice. Everybody at that time distrusted the capacities of the Egyptians, and it was thought the evacuation might be accomplished if it were entrusted to stronger and more honest men than were bred by the banks of the Nile. 
The ministers looked about them, wondering how they could assist the Egyptian government without risk or expense to themselves, and in an evil hour for their fame and fortunes, someone whispered the word, Gordon. Forthwith they proceeded to telegraph to Cairo. Would General Charles Gordon be of any use to you, or to the Egyptian government, and if so, in what capacity? The Egyptian government replied through Sir Evelyn Baring that as the movement in the Sudan was partly religious, they were very much averse from the appointment of a Christian in high command. The eyes of all those who possessed local knowledge were turned to a different person. There was one man who might stem the tide of Mahdism, who might perhaps restore the falling dominion of Egypt, who might at least save the garrisons of the Sudan. In their necessity and distress, the Khedivial advisers and the British plenipotentiary looked as a desperate remedy to the man whose liberty they had curtailed, whose property they had confiscated, and whose son they had executed, Zubair Pasha. This was the agent for whom the government of Egypt hankered. The idea was supported by all who were acquainted with the local conditions. A week after Sir Evelyn Baring had declined General Gordon's services, he wrote, Whatever may be Zubair's faults, he is said to be a man of great energy and resolution. The Egyptian government considers that his services may be very useful. Baker Pasha is anxious to avail himself of Zubair Pasha's services. From Sir Evelyn Baring, letter of December 9, 1883. It is certain that had the Egyptian government been a free agent, Zubair would have been sent to the Sudan as its sultan, and assisted by arms, money, and perhaps by men, to make head against the Mahdi. It is probable that at this particular period the Mahdi would have collapsed before a man whose fame was nearly equal to, and whose resources would have been much greater than, his own. But the British ministry would countenance no dealings with such a man. They scouted the idea of Zubair, and by so doing increased their obligation to suggest an alternative. Zubair being rejected, Gordon remained. It is scarcely possible to conceive a greater contrast than that which these two men presented. It was a leap from the equator to the North Pole. When difficulties and dangers perplex all minds, it has often happened in history that many men, by different lines of thought, arrive at the same conclusion. No complete record has yet been published of the telegrams which pass between the government and their agent at this juncture. The blue books preserve a disingenuous discretion. But it is known that from the very first Sir Evelyn Baring was bitterly opposed to General Gordon's appointment. No personal friendship existed between them, and the administrator dreaded the return to the feverish complications of Egyptian politics of the man who had always been identified with unrest, improvisation, and disturbance. The pressure was, however, too strong for him to withstand. Nubar Pasha, the foreign office, the British public, everyone clamoured for the appointment. Had Baring refused to give way, it is probable that he would have been overruled. At length he yielded, and, as soon as his consent had been obtained, the government turned with delight to Gordon. On the 17th of January Lord Wolseley requested him to come to England. On the 18th he met the Cabinet. That same night he started on the long journey from which he was never to return. Gordon embarked on his mission in high spirits, sustained by that belief in personality 
which too often misleads great men and beautiful women. It was, he said, the greatest honour ever conferred upon him. Everything smiled. The nation was delighted. The ministers were intensely relieved. The most unbounded confidence was reposed in the envoy. His interview with the Khedive was very satisfactory. His complete authority was proclaimed to all the notables and natives of the Sudan, in the proclamation of the Khedive, January 26, 1884. He was assured of the support of the Egyptian government, in a communication from Sir E. Baring to Major General Gordon, January 25, 1884. The London Foreign Office, having with becoming modesty admitted that they had not sufficient local knowledge, taken from Earl Granville to Sir E. Baring, January 22, 1884, accorded him widest discretionary power. From Sir E. Baring to Earl Granville, February 1, 1884. One hundred thousand pounds was placed to his credit, and he was informed that further sums would be supplied when this was exhausted. He was assured that no effort would be wanting on the part of the Carolean authorities, whether English or Egyptian, to afford him all the support and cooperation in their power. Sir E. Baring to Major General Gordon, January 25, 1884. "'There is no sort of difference,' wrote Sir Evelyn Baring, "'between General Gordon's views and those entertained by Nubar Pasha and myself.' Sir E. Baring to Earl Granville, February 1, 1884. Under these propitious auguries, the dismal and disastrous enterprise began. His task, though difficult and, as it ultimately proved, impossible, was clearly defined. "'You will bear in mind,' wrote Sir Evelyn Baring, that the main end to be pursued is the evacuation of the Sudan. The object of your mission to the Sudan, declared the Khedive, is to carry into execution the evacuation of those territories, and to withdraw our troops, civil officials, and such of the inhabitants as may wish to leave for Egypt, and after the evacuation to take the necessary steps for establishing an organized government in the different provinces." nor was he himself under any misconception. He drew up a memorandum when on board the Tanjore, in which he fully acquiesced in the evacuation of the Sudan. In a sentence which breathes the same spirit as Mr. Gladstone's famous expression, a people rightly struggling to be free, he wrote, I must say it would be an iniquity to conquer these peoples, and then hand them back to the Egyptians without guarantees of future good government. Finally, he unhesitatingly asserted, "'No one who has ever lived in the Sudan can escape the reflection, "'What a useless possession is this land!' And Colonel Stewart, who accompanied him and endorsed the memorandum, added, "'And what a huge encumbrance to Egypt!' Thus far there was complete agreement between the British envoy and the Liberal cabinet." It is beyond the scope of these pages to describe his long ride across the desert from Kurosko to Abu Hamad, his interview with the notables at Berber, or his proclamation of the abandonment of the Sudan, which some affirm to have been an important cause of his ruin. On the 22nd of February he arrived at Khartoum. He was received with rejoicing by the whole population. They recognized again their just governor-general and their present deliverer. Those who had been about to fly for the north took fresh heart. 
they believed that behind the figure of the envoy stood the resources of an empire. The Mahdi and the gathering dervishes were perplexed and alarmed. Confusion and hesitancy disturbed their counsels and delayed their movements. Gordon had come. The armies would follow. Both friends and foes were deceived. The great man was at Khartoum, but there he would remain, alone. Whatever confidence the general had felt in the power of his personal influence had been dispelled on the journey to Khartoum. He had no more illusions. His experienced eye reviewed the whole situation. He saw himself confronted with a tremendous racial movement. The people of the Sudan had risen against foreigners. His only troops were Sudanese. He was himself a foreigner. Foremost among the leaders of the revolt were the Arab slave-dealers, furious at the attempted suppression of their trade. No one, not even Sir Samuel Baker, had tried harder to suppress it than Gordon. Lastly, the whole movement had assumed a fanatical character. Islam marched against the infidel. Gordon was a Christian. His own soldiers were under the spell they were to try to destroy. To them, their commander was accursed. Every influence was hostile, and in particular hostile to his person. The combined forces of race, class, and religion were against him. He bowed before their irresistible strength. On the very day of his arrival at Khartoum, while the townsfolk were cheering his name in the streets and the batteries were firing joyful salutes, while the people of England thought his mission already accomplished, and the government congratulated themselves on the wisdom of their action, General Gordon sat himself down and telegraphed a formal request to Cairo for Zubair Pasha. The whole story of his relations with Zubair is extremely characteristic. Zubair's son, Suleiman, had been executed, if not by Gordon's orders, at least during his administration of the Sudan, and with his complete approval. Thus, he had said, does God make gaps in the ranks of his enemies? He had hardly started from London on his new mission, when he telegraphed to Sir Evelyn Baring, telling him that Zubair was a most dangerous man, and requesting that he might be at once deported to Cyprus. This was, of course, quite beyond the powers or intention of the British agent. The general arrived in Cairo like a whirlwind close behind his telegram, and was very angry to hear that Zubair was still in Egypt. Before starting up the river he went to see Sharif Pasha. In the ex-minister's ante-room he met the very man he had determined to avoid, Zubair. He greeted him with effusion. They had a long talk about the Sudan, after which Gordon hurried to the agency and informed Sir Evelyn Baring that Zubair must accompany him to Khartoum at once. Baring was amazed. He did not himself disapprove of the plan. He had, in fact, already recommended it. But he thought the change in Gordon's attitude too sudden to be relied on. Tomorrow he might change again. He begged the general to think more seriously of the matter. Gordon, with his usual frankness, admitted that his change of mind had been very sudden. He had been conscious, he said, of a mystic feeling that Zubair was necessary to save the situation in the Sudan. Gordon left Cairo still considering the matter. So soon as he made his formal demand from Khartoum for the assistance of Zubair, it was evident that his belief in the old slave-dealer's usefulness was a sound conviction, and not a mere passing caprice. 
Besides, he had now become the man on the spot, and as such his words carried double force. Sir Evelyn Baring determined to support the recommendation with his whole influence. Never was so good a case made out for the appointment of so bad a man. The envoy extraordinary asked for him. Colonel Stewart, his colleague, concurred. The British agent strongly urged the request. The Egyptian government were unanimous, and behind all these were ranged every single person who had the slightest acquaintance with the Sudan. Nothing could exceed the vigour with which the demand was made. On the 1st of March, General Gordon telegraphed, "'I tell you plainly, it is impossible to get Cairo employees out of Khartoum unless the government helps in the way I told you. They refuse Zubair, but it was the only chance.' And again on the 8th, "'If you do not send Zubair, you have no chance of getting the garrisons away.' "'I believe,' said Sir Evelyn Baring, in support of these telegrams, "'that General Gordon is quite right when he says that Zubair Pasha is the only possible man. Nubar is strongly in favour of him. Dr. Bondorf, the African traveller, fully confirms what General Gordon says of the influence of Zubair.' The Pasha was vile, but indispensable. Her Majesty's government refused absolutely to have anything to do with Zubair. They declined to allow the Egyptian government to employ him. They would not entertain the proposal, and scarcely consented to discuss it. The historians of the future may occupy their leisure, and exercise their wits in deciding whether the ministers and the people were right or wrong whether they had a right to indulge their sensitiveness at so terrible a cost, whether they were not more nice than wise, whether their dignity was more offended by what was incurred or by what was avoided. General Gordon has explained his views very clearly and concisely. Had Zubir Pasha been sent up when I asked for him, Berber would in all probability never have fallen— and one might have made a Sudan government in opposition to the Mahdi. We choose to refuse his coming up because of his antecedents in the slave trade. Granted that we had reason yet, as we take no precautions as to the future of these lands with respect to the slave trade, the above opposition seems absurd. I will not send up A because he will do this, but I will leave the country to B, who will do exactly the same." from Major-General Gordon, journals at Khartoum. But if the justice of the decision is doubtful, its consequences were obvious. Either the British government were concerned with the Sudan, or they were not. If they were not, then they had no reason or right to prohibit the appointment of Zubair. If they were, they were bound to see that the garrisons were rescued. It was an open question whether Great Britain was originally responsible for the safety of the garrisons. General Gordon contended that we were bound to save them at all costs, and he backed his belief with his life. Others may hold that governments have no right to lay, or, at any rate, must be very judicious in the laying of burdens on the backs of their own countrymen, in order that they may indulge a refined sense of chivalry towards foreigners. England had not misgoverned the Sudan, had not raised the revolt or planted the garrisons, all that Egypt had a right to expect was commiseration. But the moment Zubair was prohibited, the situation was changed. 
The refusal to permit his employment was tantamount to an admission that affairs in the Sudan involved the honour of England as well as the honour of Egypt. When the British people, for this was not merely the act of the government, adopted a high moral attitude with regard to Zubair, they bound themselves to rescue the garrisons, peacefully if possible, forcibly if necessary. With their refusal to allow Zubair to go to the Sudan began the long and miserable disagreement between the government and their envoy. Puzzled and disturbed at the reception accorded to his first request, Gordon cast about for other expedients. He had already stated that Zubair was the only chance. But it is the duty of subordinates to suggest other courses when those they recommend are rejected and with a whole-hearted enthusiasm and unreserved loyalty, the general threw himself into the affair, and proposed plan after plan with apparent hope. Gordon considered that he was personally pledged to effect the evacuation of Khartoum by the garrison and civil servants. He had appointed some of the inhabitants to positions of trust, thus compromising them with the Mahdi. Others had undoubtedly been encouraged to delay their departure by his arrival. He therefore considered that his honour was involved in their safety. Henceforward he was inflexible. Neither rewards nor threats could move him. Nothing that men could offer would induce him to leave Khartoum till its inhabitants were rescued. The government on their side were equally stubborn. Nothing, however sacred, should induce them to send troops to Khartoum, or in any way involve themselves in the middle of Africa. The town might fall, the garrison might be slaughtered, their envoy—but what possibilities they were prepared to face as regards him will not be known until all of this and the next generation are buried and forgotten. The deadlock was complete. To some men the foreign office might have suggested lines of retreat, covered by the highest official praise, and leading to preferment and reward. Others would have welcomed an order to leave so perilous a post. But the man they had sent was the one man of all others who was beyond their control, who cared nothing for what they could give or take away. So events dragged on their wretched course. Gordon's proposals became more and more impracticable, as the best courses he could devise were successively vetoed by the government, and as his irritation and disappointment increased. The editor of his journals has enumerated them with indignant care. He had asked for Zubair. Zubair was refused. He had requested Turkish troops. Turkish troops were refused. He had asked for Mohammedan regiments from India. The government regretted their inability to comply. He asked for a firman from the Sultan to strengthen his position. It was peremptorily refused. He proposed to go south in his steamers to Equatoria. The government forbade him to proceed beyond Khartoum. He asked that two hundred British troops might be sent to Berber. They were refused. He begged that a few might be sent to Aswan. None were sent. He proposed to visit the Mahdi himself and try to arrange matters with him personally. Perhaps he recognized a kindred spirit. The government in this case very naturally forbade him. At last the quarrel is open. He makes no effort to conceal his disgust. "'I leave you,' he says, "'the indelible disgrace of abandoning the garrisons.' From Major General Gordon to Sir E. Baring, Telegraphic, received at Cairo, April 16. 
Such abandonment is, he declares, the climax of meanness. Ibid dispatched April 8th. He reiterates his determination to abide with the garrison of Khartoum. I will not leave these people after all they have gone through. Major General Gordon to Sir E. Baring, Khartoum, July 30, received at Cairo, October 15. He tosses his commission contemptuously from him. I would also ask Her Majesty's Government to accept the resignation of my commission. Major General Gordon to Sir E. Baring, Telegraphic, Khartoum, March 9. The Government trusts that he will not resign. Earl Granville to Sir E. Baring, Foreign Office, March 13. And his offer remains in abeyance. Finally, in bitterness and vexation, thinking himself abandoned and disavowed, he appeals to Sir Evelyn Baring personally. I feel sure, whatever you may feel diplomatically, I have your support, and that of every man professing himself a gentleman, in private. Major General Gordon to Sir E. Baring, telegraphic, received at Cairo, April 16. And as a last hope, he begs Sir Samuel Baker to appeal to British and American millionaires to subscribe two hundred thousand pounds to enable him to carry out the evacuation without, and even in spite of, the governments of Cairo and London. And Sir Samuel Baker writes a long letter to the Times in passionate protest and entreaty. Such are the chief features in the wretched business. Even the blue books in their dry recital arouse in the reader painful and indignant emotions. But meanwhile other and still more stirring events were passing outside the world of paper and ink. The arrival of Gordon at Khartoum had seriously perplexed and alarmed Mohammed Ahmed and his caliphs. Their following was discouraged, and they themselves feared lest the general should be the herald of armies. His Berber proclamation reassured them, and as the weeks passed without reinforcements arriving, the Mahdi and Abdullah, with that courage which in several great emergencies drew them to the boldest courses, determined to put a brave face on the matter and blockade Khartoum itself. They were assisted in this enterprise by a revival of the patriotic impulse throughout the country, and a consequent stimulus to the revolt. To discover the cause, it is necessary to look to the eastern Sudan, where the next tragedy, after the defeat of Hicks, is laid. The Hadendoa tribe, infuriated by oppression and misgovernment, had joined the rebellion under the leadership of the celebrated, and perhaps immortal, Osman Digna. The Egyptian garrisons of Tokar and Sinkat were beleaguered and hard-pressed. Her Majesty's government disclaimed all responsibility. Yet, since these towns were not far from the coast, they did not prohibit an attempt on the part of the Egyptian government to rescue the besieged soldiers. Accordingly, an Egyptian force 3,500 strong marched from Suakin in February 1884 to relieve Tokar, under the command of General Baker, once the gallant colonel of the 10th Hussars. Hard by the wells of Teb they were, on the 5th of February, attacked by about a thousand Arabs. On the square being only threatened by a small force of the enemy, the Egyptian troops threw down their arms and ran, carrying away the black troops with them, and allowing themselves to be killed without the slightest resistance. General Baker to Sir E. Baring, February 6, Official Dispatch, Telegraphic. 
the British and European officers in vain endeavoured to rally them. The single Sudanese battalion fired impartially on friend and foe. The general, with that unshaken courage and high military skill which had already on the Danube gained him a continental reputation, collected some fifteen hundred men, mostly unarmed, and so returned to Suakin. Ninety-six officers and twenty-two hundred fifty men were killed. Krupp guns, machine-guns, rifles, and a large supply of ammunition fell to the victorious Arabs. Success inflamed their ardour to the point of madness. The attack of the towns was pressed with redoubled vigour. The garrison of Sinkat, eight hundred strong, sallied out and attempted to fight their way to Suakin. The garrison of Tokar surrendered. Both were destroyed. The evil was done. The slaughter was complete. Yet the British government resolved to add to it. The garrisons they had refused to rescue they now determined to avenge. In spite of their philanthropic professions, and in spite of the advice of General Gordon, who felt that his position at Khartoum would be still further compromised by operations on his only line of retreat, Sir E. Baring to Earl Granville, Cairo, February 23, a considerable military expedition, consisting of one cavalry and two infantry brigades, was sent to Suakin. The command was entrusted to General Graham. Troops were hurriedly concentrated. The Tenth Hussars, returning from India, were stopped and mounted on the horses of the gendarmerie. With admirable celerity, the force took the field. Within a month of the defeat at Teb, they engaged the enemy almost on the very scene of the disaster. On the 4th of March they slew 3,000 Hadendoa and drove the rest in disorder from the ground. Four weeks later a second action was fought at Tamai. Again the success of the British troops was complete. Again the slaughter of the Arabs was enormous. But neither victory was bloodless. El Teb cost 24 officers and 168 men. Tamai, 13 officers and 208 men. The effect of these operations was the dispersal of Osman Digna's gathering. That astute man, not for the first or last time, made a good retreat. Ten thousand men had thus been killed in the space of three months in the eastern Sudan. By the discipline of their armies the government were triumphant. The tribes of the Red Sea shore cowered before them. But as they fought without reason, so they conquered without profit. As soon as Gordon had been finally refused the assistance of Zubair Pasha, it was evident that the rescue of the garrisons was impossible. The general had been sent as the last hope. Rightly or wrongly, his recommendations were ignored. His mission was an admitted failure. After that, the only question was how to bring him away as quickly as possible. It was certain that he would not come willingly. Force was necessary yet it was difficult to know how to apply it. After the victories in the eastern Sudan, the opportunity presented itself. The road was open. The local tribes were crushed. Berber had not then fallen. The Mahdi was himself still on the road from El Obayed to Khartoum. Sir Evelyn Baring saw the chance. He did not then occupy the formidable and imposing position in Egyptian politics that he has since attained but with all his influence he urged the dispatch of a small flying column to Khartoum. His idea was simple. One thousand or twelve hundred men were to mount on camels and ride thither via Berber. 
Those who fell ill, or whose camels broke down, would have to take their chance by the roadside. The plan, however, broke down in the military detail. Only one honourable course remained, a regular expedition. This the British agent at once began to urge. This the government obstinately refused to admit, and meanwhile time was passing. The situation at Khartoum became grave even before the breach between General Gordon and Mr. Gladstone's cabinet was complete. While the British government was indulging in vengeful operations in the eastern Sudan, the Mahdi advanced slowly but steadily upon the town with a following variously estimated at from fifteen to twenty thousand men. On the 7th of March, Colonel Stewart telegraphed from Khartoum, "'The Mahdi has attempted to raise the people of Shendi by an emissary. We may be cut off.' Lieutenant Colonel Stewart to Sir E. Baring, March 7, 1884. And on the 11th, Gordon himself reported, "'The rebels are four hours distant on the Blue Nile.' Major General Gordon to Sir E. Baring, March 11, 1884. Thereafter no more telegrams came, for on the 15th the wire was cut between Shendi and Berber, and the blockade had commenced. The long and glorious defence of the town of Khartoum will always fascinate attention. That one man, a European among Africans, a Christian among Mohammedans, should by his genius have inspired the efforts of seven thousand soldiers of inferior race, and by his courage have sustained the hearts of thirty thousand inhabitants of notorious timidity, and with such materials and encumbrances have offered a vigorous resistance to the increasing attacks of an enemy who, though cruel, would yet accept surrender, during a period of three hundred and seventeen days, is an event perhaps without parallel in history. But it may safely be predicted that no one will ever write an account which will compare in interest or in detail with that set forth by the man himself in the famous Journals at Khartoum. The brief account has delighted thousands of readers in Europe and America. Perhaps it is because he is careless of the sympathy of men that Charles Gordon so readily wins it. Before the first of the six parts into which the journals were divided is finished, the reader has been one. Henceforth he sees the world through Gordon's eyes. With him he scoffs at the diplomatists, despises the government, becomes impatient, unreasonably perhaps, with a certain Major Kitchener in the intelligence branch, whose information miscarried or was not dispatched, is wearied by the impracticable Shaiga irregulars, takes interest in the turkey cock in his harem of four wives, laughs at the black sluts seeing their faces for the first time in the mirror. With him he trembles for the fate of the poor little beast, the Husseinia, when she drifts stern foremost on the shoal, a penny steamer under cannon-fire. Day after day he gazes through the general's powerful telescope from the palace roof, down the long brown reaches of the river towards the rocks of the Shabluka Gorge, and longs for some sign of the relieving steamers, and when the end of the account is reached, no man of British birth can read the last words, "'Now mark this, if the expeditionary force, and I ask for no more than two hundred men, does not come within ten days, the town may fall, and I have done my best for the honour of our country. Good-bye.' Without being thrilled with vain regrets and futile resolutions. And then the account stopped short. 
nor will the silence ever be broken. The sixth installment of the journals was dispatched on the 14th of December, and when it is finished the reader, separated suddenly from the pleasant companionship, experiences a feeling of loss and annoyance. Imagination, long supported, is brushed aside by stern reality. Henceforward, Gordon's perils were unrecorded. End of Part 1 of Chapter 2